like I said, looking back at it now, it's like, you know, dr- drugs and alcohol are, are, they're a symptom of ourselves, right? It's, it's, oh, I don't like the way I feel. So I'm going to take this substance to cover it up, you know? And, and, and when I talk to people about it, you know, I'm like, when you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or a situation, right? Somebody passes away. What's the first thing you say you're going to do? Oh, I'm going to go to the bar and, and get after up, or I'm going to go, I need a drink. I'm knocking doors down with Mike Gibson. NFL guard. That's right. Six years in the NFL, drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. Mike was in and out of treatment six times for heroin and meth addiction. The last time, the former NFL vet was completely broke. After having a spiritual awakening and finding a higher power, as well as going through a 12-step program, Mike has been clean for over five years now. We talk about that much more and of course random questions and mike leaves us with the final thought and hey while you're checking knocking doors down out don't forget to hit the subscribe button and if you get a lot out of this podcast share with a friend and don't forget the archive of interviews we have bam margera brandon novak kat von d charlie sheen edward furlong kelly osborne the list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. Right now, I am wearing my new 5150 hat, warm leather jacket, As well, I got my new 5150 joggers on that I like to wear around the winter time. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And of course, I said it helps within the community. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the race to end the stigma, the race for autism, and the race to be drug-free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. Mike, what is going on, good sir? How's it going, Jason? Good. Hey, we're going to jump right in, being that your your last name is Gibson. We're going to jump in with the G word, gratitude. This is how I'm <laughs> starting this uh, now. Uh, three things you're grateful for today. To have a roof over my head. Um, to have genuine relationships with individuals uh, today that that care about uh, who I am and not what I used to be, um, you know, and just have the opportunity uh, to provide for my family and be there with with my family today. Yeah, those are all good areas. Those genuine connections, man. That is the one of the biggest areas. It took me a while with recovery to mm-hmm. really be able to decipher. Yeah, I still struggle with it a little bit today, so I get it. Is it is it setting of boundaries? Is it uh, just wondering if if you know what people are saying? You know, kind of what is it? Uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, believe half of what you see and nothing of what you hear. Or? <laughs> no, m- majority of it has to do with, um, in which we'll probably talk about later, is uh, having those relationships. I, I in my previous career, um, I had a lot of people who. Uh, became friends with me because they had ulterior motives. Right. Um, you know, it was the, because of what I did, not because of who I was. Um, so typically today when, uh, I have relationships or start off relationships with people, friends, acquaintances, whatever it may be. Um, 
I don't initially tell them that I played in the NFL and I do that for a reason, right? Because I want them to get to know me and like me for the person that I am, not because of something that I did or something that I, that I can get them that may benefit them. Um, so the, I have a friend recently who, uh, it's actually kind of funny, who I play a lot of sober softball, right? In the sober softball community. And I've known him for close to three years. And he sent me a message. He goes, dude, I didn't know you played football. <laughs> I said, all I wrote back was good. <laughs> that's the way I like it. Yeah, that's the way I like uh, it. Right? That, is, that is really, um, yeah, I mean, I never had it to the extreme of you, but, uh, you know, I've worked in when radio was a big deal in a small town. So there was a lot of that. And I did not have the filters to decipher it as a people pleaser wanting to be loved and liked. And, uh, yeah, you know, to, to recognize that any of it was bullshit because the vast majority of those people are gone. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and that's one thing that, uh, I struggled with when I first retired, mm-hmm. right. It was, I had all these people that were consistently calling me, uh, people that were around me all the time, um, people that were checking up on me. And in the the sad reality it is, is, is like out of sight, out of mind. I don't talk to any of those people to this day. Um, so. Yeah. It's that hurtful lesson. Yep. But we need it, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, especially at the, as much of a struggle as it was, like it's, it's leading me to where I'm at today. Right. And, um, you know, I couldn't be happier. That's good to hear. Let's, uh, let's, uh, jump back a little bit because, uh, I'm, I'm curious about what little Mike was like, uh, growing up. Uh, how were you? What was childhood? What do you recollect? And yeah. Yeah. Uh, so little Mike, huh? I, I definitely probably wasn't the, uh, greatest kid in the world as a <laughs> adolescent. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was definitely wild. I had an older brother um, who I hung around with. Uh, we had a lot of fun. You know, we'd get in trouble egging houses, teepeeing houses, stuff like that, right? Um, I can remember from a young age going to the Safeway um, in Napa, right? I'm from Napa, California. And, um, you know, going to the Safeway with my older brother and his friend and or friends. And it's back in the day when they used to carry cigarettes, like in the front of the store, they didn't lock them up, right? And so, you know, it's one of two stores in all of Napa or grocery stores. And so, you know, hey, Mike, go steal that pack of cigarettes. I'm like, okay. So I run in, grab a pack of cigarettes, run out, you know, and we all sit out there and hang out by Phillips School and we're sitting there smoking cigarettes. And, um, you know, every now and again, you'd one of the buddies would have like a Mickey's 40 that we, you know, take a pull off of, stick it in the wood. There's a creek behind the school and we, you know, like kind of bury it behind a tree come back a week later, take another poll (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that, you know? So, um, yeah, you know, I, I was definitely hard headed. Yeah. How old were you about when this was, you know, I can't, if I had to guess, I was probably anywhere from like eight to 10. Oh, wow. Yeah. So younger, my brother's two years older, you know, I, I wanted to hang around him, being around him and his friends, which I'm sure he hated. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I have an older brother, four years, man. They used to terrorize my ass <laughs> uh, until I grew and I was bigger than everybody. Yeah. Um, so was there stuff that was going on at home that, that I mean, eight, 10, that's pretty early to start diving into the, the, the substances and stuff, you know, there, there was certain things going on at home. Um, you know, uh, my, 
I don't know if it was that era or whatever it was, but like when the streetlights came on, you know, my parents didn't really mind what I did as long as I didn't get in too much trouble. Mm-hmm. And when the streetlights came on, I was either headed home or home. Right. right. And uh, if not, you could hear my stepmom screaming, Michael Thomas, you know, <laughs> like four streets over and you can hear that yell, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, there was definitely stuff going on at home. Um, you know, as my mother left when I was two years old, um, you know, and didn't have much communication with her. So my dad had remarried. My dad uh, was always working hard. Um, so, and, and my stepmom as well, always working hard. Um, so it was, you know, back in the day, man, we used to walk to school, you know, walk to and from school. And that's kind of your, I'm walking with my brother, you know, hanging around our friends and, you know, doing what kids do. Yeah. That was definitely the, the era with our parents. And, you know, I've, I don't know about you had to look back and, and, you know, as generations move, I think we get a little more emotionally mature, you know, a little more understanding communication gets a little bit better. But, you know, when I when I let go of resentments, I don't know about you with this like childhood resentments is while my parents went through a lot of shit, they actually did better for my brother and I than was done for them. And all they really knew was how to work hard, provide and, you know, I mean, my dad will say it now. He's he's been in long term recovery too. Is like, hey, I would take back all that hard working for Disney trips and all the GI Joe you had to spend a little more time. Mm-hmm. But I don't think our generation of parents really knew any different, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like um, the generation. I mean, and it's all about connectivity, right? I mean, now you have cell phones, right? You can talk, you can text your parents, talk to your parents. You know, back in the day, it was you know it was uh, you know you're walking to school. You didn't talk to your parents again until they got home from work. Yeah. So, uh, there wasn't too much uh, communication in between there, you know, maybe it was the sign of the times. And then, you know, before that it was, uh, you know, even more different than what it is today. Absolutely. Did you, did you find that subconsciously there was some harboring of resentment or that you felt rejected by your mom, birth mom leaving? Yeah, 100%. Okay. You know, a lot of questions of like, um, like, why did you leave? Um, why are you not here? Uh, there was questions of, you know, I, the times that I did see her, I'd have to take a train or my dad would drive me down or down to Fresno where she lives. And, um, you know, it was just a, it was just a different, like when I, when I went to go see her, like I did have a good time. Um, it was just a different um, type atmosphere, you know, and uh, she was always caring, but and was always there to pick up the phone. But it was a situation where, you know, I've never asked her that question. I haven't spoken to her in quite a few years. Hmm. Uh, so it's just uh, I've never really asked her that question. So, hmm. yeah, it, it, I, I know for me, I kind of I guess I've been fortunate to be able to. Not so much my mom. My mom is pretty great, but, you know, my dad, the addict, uh, so there's a lot of codependency there, you know, and in retrospect, my mom just didn't want my dad to die, uh, you know, but I saw it differently because of what I was experiencing and always feeling like an outsider that didn't fit. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their race for autism, race to be drug free, and race to end the stigma campaigns. 
You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. Did you go through any of that phase too, just like knowing you were a little bit different or just didn't quite fit or did things to get attention to fit in? Yeah, I mean, completely, right? So in, in Napa, there's there's two different uh, like socioeconomics uh statuses in Napa, right? You're either very wealthy um, or you're not, mm-hmm. you know, my, my dad, um, looking back at that, my dad was always working, right? He was, uh, he used to put up awnings. That's what he did. Um, and just different. Like my house was always different than everybody else's, right? Like I always had hand-me-down clothes. I always had hand-me-down shoes. Um, you know, it was every now and again during basketball season, I'd get a, a newer pair of shoes, right? Which was pretty sick. And, um, but other guys are wearing Jordans, right. I'm wearing, you know, regular Nikes, you know, and, and that's why like today I like getting shoes, right. Like certain shoes I like to get, you know, because when I was in seventh and eighth grade, you know, and high before high school and I started working was all these guys have these six shoes. So I like to go out and get those shoes, <laughs> right. Because I, I wasn't, I didn't have the opportunity when I was younger. Yeah. So like, but I was always like a short, chubby, stocky kid, um, you know, and, and it was just a, I'd go to other friends' house and, you know, I'd eat a half a gallon of ice cream. I, I remember um, my friend Jason and his parents yelled at me, right? Because we went and got ice, we got ice cream from the freezer and I filled my bowl like halfway. <laughs> but my, my family didn't, uh, like, we didn't get yelled at like that for home. Right. You know, we didn't get yelled at like that while we were at home. So, um, but yeah, just different in that aspect. My house was different. You know, it was, uh, yeah, I definitely thought that I was uh, unique in in that town for sure. Right. Uh, sports then become a good outlet. Totally. Yeah. I mean, from the time that I saw my older brother put on the pads, he was eight years old. I was six and I was mad every single day for the next two years because I couldn't play until I was eight. Um, and then as I got older, like it, it, it definitely became an outlet. Right. I was always playing um, football or basketball. Uh, I was always going out and doing things like that to kind of get away from um, the atmosphere that I had back at home. Mm. Um, And then obviously like through my teenage years, um, definitely 100%, you know, so like during my whole high school, like I remember smoking weed out of a gas mask one time, my older brother, right. I'm like, I want to smoke weed. And so he's like, here's your gas mask, dude. And it was like, never liked weed when I was using still can't stand the smell of it today. Um, due to that one experience. Right. Um, and then drank once in high school, puked all over the place, um, and wasn't a fan of it. Right. And so during my whole like high school years, I I went to one party, you know, we didn't, my, my now wife, right. We, we, we were both athletes. She went to uh, university of Georgia as a catcher. Um, I went to Cal, uh, to play football. Right. And so, and, and I was determined to do so. And that's the one driving force that I always had. And maybe it was to get out of the atmosphere that I was in, but I always, you know, but I had this desire to play football and I wasn't going to let anything get in the way of doing that. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause for me, people never believe it with where my alcoholism took me, which I would say really, it was like a solid seven, eight years of, of 
of the escalation, so to speak. But I was the guy that got people home from parties. And I think I went to two or three. I, I didn't drink, you know, I didn't yeah. do drugs, none of it. You know, I kind of had a weird determination for me because I saw it at home. Yeah. You know, and it's still a baffling thing. Like, how did I succumb to this? Yeah, I, I, I still trip out on that as well. You really? know, I have that question of like, why, like how... I understand how I got to that, but like looking back at certain tendencies, I don't know if you've experienced this, but looking back at certain tendencies, right. It's like, I got to where I was with football because of my addiction and desire to get there. Right. Right. So like I was going to do everything. I, you know, I, I work out religiously. Um, I was always training. I was always running sprints, you know, um, especially during like the end of my high school years, to junior college and then it's a college, right? It's like when guys are out partying, I'm out in the dark on the track running. Yeah. Um, that's just something that like I wasn't gonna get let anything get in the way of that. And so it became like an obsession, right? And then obviously later on down the road, um, you know, it became an obsession. I I also realized like that I am different in certain aspects by when I started going to parties and starting going around people. Once I had that first sip of alcohol, it changed how I felt up here, right? Like yeah. I have like a social anxiety issue when I'm around a lot of people, right? I get really quiet, right? But when we're one-on-one -on -one like this or we're in a small group of people I know, I'm very outgoing. Yeah. And um, so going to a party, I get a few, you know, a few sodas down down the hatch. The next thing you know, I'm picking people up. <laughs> picking people up. <laughs> and, and that's the first, they liked it. So I liked it, right? It got me out of myself. Yeah. Oh, I can relate. Totally. Yeah. For me, it really didn't start till about 22 was when I really started any sort of, you know, I didn't, uh, didn't illegally drink. Think I maybe had a sip of champagne at a cousin's wedding or something like, good God, why do people like that? You know, yeah. But yeah, before the age of 22, it was, uh, you know, I didn't go into like bars or, you know, any of it, but once it was, uh, like you said, that liquid courage came in, then all of a sudden the pretty girl, she didn't seem so intimidating. And, and you got, I'm like you, I'm good one-on-one. -on -one, uh, but once you get that pretty girl cracking up then it's like, oh yeah, look at me. Huh? I'm, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's the shits, man. Yeah. People never believe because I do a lot of like event hosting, MMA, ring announcing and stuff that I am a total introvert, it's, it, you know, right. like di different hat, different hat up there. Yeah. Safe. You guys are all out there. But right. uh, yeah, that uh, crowd of people. Oh, this is awkward. Right. And, and that's that's honestly where, like I said, looking back at it now, it's like, you know, dr drugs and alcohol are. are they're a symptom of ourselves, right? It's, it's, Oh, I don't like the way I feel. So I'm going to take this substance to cover it up, you know? And, and, and when I talk to people about it, you know, I'm like, when you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or a situation, right? Somebody passes away. What's the first thing you say you're going to do? Oh, I'm going to go to the bar and, and get effed up, or I'm going to go, I need a drink, right? Because you're using that to change the way that you feel, whether you feel depressed, um, you know, you have that anxiety or whatever it is, right? The first thing you do is you take a sip of alcohol. And at that point, um, that's when I explained to him, I said, look, it's just a symptom of what it is that you're going through. 
And it's hard to get that through to people because mm-hmm. the, the 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 social mentality. Hey, things are good. Let's go celebrate with some drinks. Oh man, I'm sorry. Let's 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 go have some beers and talk about it. You know. Uh, yeah. Hey, we're gonna hang out and watch the watch the football game. Cool. Let's crack some beers and barbecue. You know that there's just it's so the mentality is so ingrained. Yeah. No. Definitely. I mean, it's it's when I tell people that alcohol is a drug. Yeah, they, they, they trip out on that. You know, it's, it's uh, look at how many people die from alcohol related deaths every year. Um, you know, I, I work in the treatment field, the worst, um, uh, deaths that I see or the worst cases that I see are alcohol related. Uh, it's, it's a slow killer. Did you see a spike throughout the pandemic and post pandemic of people coming into treatment? Completely. Yeah. And, and a lot of that goes back to uh, mental health. Yeah. This is people are struggling with their mental health. A lot of relapses, um, a lot of first timers as well. Yeah. No, I, I had a, a fall off. Luckily, my last fall off, um, I'll be coming up on two years, February 15th, lasted for that evening. But yeah, it's, you know, it, I'm fortunate that my my doc, my drug of choice, the DOC, is simply alcohol because if it's something more, you know, I could not be here, especially with fentanyl and how it's in everything now. Yeah, I mean, it's my my substance was I mean, I'm a trash can, right? So like anything and everything, whatever you got, I want all of it, right? Um and alcohol was my least favorite. <laughs> so it was uh, pretty much everything else and you know, even the substances that I did use before, uh, you know, fentanyl wasn't a part of that. When you, right. when you wanted to go get fentanyl, you knew where to get it. Right. You know, so, and you knew what you were using for the most part, right? Like, um, you know, I eventually uh, succumbed to heroin, um, like a lot of people do. And, um, you know, you, you never know what's in it. But at least back when, you know, five years ago, um, when I was five and a half years ago, when I was using it, you, you somewhat knew what you were getting. Yeah. You know, now you it doesn't matter the substance. Uh, for, I've read a stat the other day, 14% of the cocaine in the United States is cut with fentanyl. Yeah. And you're seeing it more and more. And, um, you know, the, the stigma of, uh, alcoholism, addiction and mental health is kind of, uh, being brought to the forefront of the stigmas going away. Um, you know, obviously with celebrities and, in their sobriety right which is which is amazing in my opinion well we need more of those voices if it's uh maybe not the average guy like myself that they're going to listen to hopefully with some of the celebs you know i mean i had a, yeah. a, a thing recently where um a person um in uh in another country stumbled upon the edward furlong interview and they were about ready to pop pills they were just scrolling through through youtube and came across it and ended up watching like four interviews or something and dumped their pills. It's like, you know, thank goodness for, for these people to share their stories, to make a difference, you know? Yeah. I mean, how freaking sick is that though? Yeah. We don't. Yeah. Still gives me chills. Still gives me <laughs> chills. How did you do through the pandemic? Cause for me, it really, pardon the language, fucked me up the, the isolation and, and I'm still like, I'm really angry. Like our, like it is in the freaking constitution, our right to gather for groups. And yeah, I'm just, I'm still having a tough time with it. Cause I've known people that have fallen off and died because of the way 
that it was treated. Yeah, no, no. And I, and I'm right there with you. Um, you know, on the community that we live in thrives on uh, connection, right. And that's human connection, not, not through a computer screen. Um, you know, for me, I traveled like, and, and, and I have a hard time like talking about certain things, right. Because I know a lot of people struggled with, uh, with the, the COVID, the lockdowns and everything in particular, me, I ended up thriving, mm. uh, which is kind of a, a weird, you know, I, I say that and I have a lot, like I feel bad, um, because of, like you said, you struggled a lot with the whole thing, right. For me, I was able to work from home. Um, you know, I was able to help people get into treatment, um, during that time, um, you know, was able to get a promotion get a new job. Um, and, uh, you know, was able to save money, which was a blessing. Right. So where I was able to buy a house again, which I never thought I'd be able to do. Um, but I traveled a lot, you know, Arizona would open up. Like I said, I play a lot of softball. I play a lot of sober softball. They would have the Arizona was open. Utah was open. You know, I went to, I drove to Arizona 16 times, um, you know, to be around people. Um, but you know, I would do a lot of H and I's, um, in treatment centers, but it's just different. You're doing it with a mask on, you're doing it. It was a very unique situation. And the one part where I did struggle though, was, uh, for my own personal meetings. Mm -hmm. I was like going to zoom meetings. Right. And, um, you know, I could do those till I'm blue in the face, but when I'm doing that, I'm, sitting here doing a zoom meeting. I'm blacking out my screen with my feet up, hitting my vape. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like not necessarily listening there. I'm, I'm there for, because I know other people are there and, and I know they're going to hold me accountable. Right. Um, you know, luckily there's uh, a church that I go to now um, that was open, you know, that I ended up switching to that was open. So I didn't have to watch it on zoom. Um, so I was able to get some of those things done. Um but yeah, the isolation definitely wasn't fun. Um, you know, the, the disappointment of like the push pull, right. It's like, when are we going to get this together? Not seeing, uh, my whole family, right. right? I was able to see parts of them, um, you know, due to people getting sick and, you know, they didn't want to get sick in particular, which, which I totally respect. Yeah. You know, so that aspect wasn't, uh, wasn't too fun. You know, I got four nieces and a nephew that I love to be around. And so for part of the time, I wasn't really able to be around them, which was, which wasn't fun either. Yeah, no, it's it, it, that, that, and you know, and we talk about it and people have heard it here on this, but it's true. The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's connectivity. It It is, it is true. And the quicker that the, the recovering individual can understand that, the better they're going to be. And it was taken away from so many people. Yeah. And like that, right. I mean, yeah. so instant, like you can't go anywhere. You can't talk to anybody. You can't touch anything. You can't do anything. And then they bring it back slowly. They pull it back, you know, is yeah. luckily here in San Diego, you could go to a park and they would have, you know, people bring their lawn chairs and then they have somebody speak there. Um, but so there, there was options there, but for a lot of people in this, in this country, there wasn't. Yeah. No. It, it, yeah. So we saw it too much. All right. Let's jump back with Mike. So, hey, we're we're off at college. Is this kind of where things start to escalate for you? Um, you know, not not even. You know, for me, I I'd had uh, so my first year after my first season there, um, I had a shoulder surgery and uh, was given pain medication. Ugh, couldn't stand it. 
my wife's had some medical issues, right? She was on pain medication, never once looked at it like, Hey, I want to take one of those. Yeah. Um, but you know, alcoholically, like I go out and I drink with my friends and usually I would, I didn't drink it because it tasted good. Right. I right. changed the way I felt. Um, and as a junior college transfer, I was the new guy, right? Like these guys have been there for three years, two years and got to know each other. I got thrown in the mix and had to get to know these people pretty quickly. So what's the best way to do that? Right. You go out and have a few beers. Um, and that kind of the bonding experiences are the parties that you have, how messed up you can get, you're throwing up and your homeboys taking care of you. And you know, what, what you're doing after the party, you're, you're walking over here to go get food, right? Like that's the stuff that like I remember when I was drinking. Right. And so that's the stuff that bonded us. Um, so that's why I ended up drinking quite a bit. I mean, it was a weekend thing for me. It wasn't like an everyday thing. Yeah. Um, after the game, have a few beers. That's about it. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. But yeah, I even had another surgery after my rookie year in the NFL in Philadelphia and hmm. prescription pain medication. Took it, hated it threw it away. Um, you know, it was not, it, I didn't like it. Yeah. I went through that same thing and uh, I work for a nonprofit um, and the boss there, he was uh, the founder, he was an opioid addict. And I was telling him after I'd had a, had a surgery. Okay. It was my vasectomy. And so they prescribed me, uh, I want to say it was like Vicodin. It was a painkiller or something. And, you know, here I am like, Oh, I'll have this with the beer. I was like, this is the worst experience ever. I took those things and flushed them. And, you know, people kind of still like, how was it? Like, I tried a good amount of drugs, mostly pills and, and weed, but, you know, booze, like none of the other stuff ever stuck. It just like, no, I don't like this. And it's the oddity of the addict of what that altering our how we are our state you know and right. yeah it was just the weirdest thing yeah pain pills never mm -mm, no yeah it, it wasn't until um but like i said still going out like i said you're with the new team right what's the number one way to get to know people is to go out and have a drink go out and have a beer so yep. that obviously continued and and you know it, i liked it right i liked going hanging out with the boys i liked going um you know doing the vegas trips when i was in philly we'd go to atlantic city you know, we, we would do those fun things. Right. Um, but once again, you know, I'm drinking it to change the way that I feel I'm drinking it to not, like I said, not cause it tastes good. You know, I still haven't found a drink that tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it wasn't until, uh, my second year in Seattle, I had a, a training camp injury, a little, like a subluxation of my hip. And so you're like, your hip pops out and then it pops back in. Um, so I still have a torn labrum in my hip. Um, and so at that point I was prescribed, uh, you know, a very small amount of, of Vicodin, right? Five milligrams, you know, two to three times a day, typical stuff like a, a normal doctor would do. Sure. Uh, 
and I was prescribed it for a long period of time. And so after the season, uh, you know, basically after I'd done it for a few weeks or a few months, I should say, you know, it was like, Hey, this is not working very much anymore. I need to, I need something to, to help me out. Right. So it's okay. Well, you know, you can take 10 milligrams two to three times a day. Um, something simple like that. Right. And, uh, I go home during the off season and I'm like, Hey, I don't want to get addicted to this stuff. Right. Meanwhile, I've been doing it for six months right now that I know. And I have my, my, my ignorance before and my lack of education, uh, you know, I go home, take it, I stop taking it and bam, what I now know is precipitated withdrawals happen. Well, I think I have like the flu, right? I'm, I've always been in tune of what I put in my body, what I know is in my body, take care of it. You know, that's kind of what I've always been. I was a short little fat kid growing up, right? And now I just wanted to be a big buff guy, right? Instead of uh, being a big fat guy. So I was very conscious of what I put in my body. And, um, He's like, I, so he looks at my chart. He's like, I think you're chemically dependent to opiates. And yeah. I'm like, well, what are we going to do? You know, I don't have any more. And the doctor in the emergency room right there said, well, here's a prescription for 30. And he's like, go to your primary care doctor and get more, you know? And sure enough, left there, fill up a prescription, took it, felt better. Go to my primary care doctor, get more. You know, he didn't know what was going on. He just saw me going through pain, right? Having this injury. Um, which I've never had surgery on still affects me to this day. Um, and, uh, at that point during the off season, we had the lock, they had a lock lockdown. So basically a disagreement between the owners and the players in the new collective bargaining agreement. So you weren't able to go back to your team doctors. Um, so I had to go to my primary care doctor who was consistently prescribing me these every 30 days. Um, I just took, kept on taking them as prescribed, maybe an extra one every now and again, you know, nothing, nothing major. And um, boom, lockout ends. And this, the NFL, everything's quick, right? So lockout ends, they call you that night, say your flight's the next morning at eight o'clock in the morning. We're getting training camp starts tomorrow. We're getting going. And the in, in the NFL, they only uh, test for street drugs once a year. Mm. And it's between 420, oddly enough, and 820. <laughs> so, and it, it has to be at a team facility. So, like, you know, when you're getting tested. So, I, I knew I was getting tested, but I had a doctor's prescription, which is totally legit, right? So, I go to my team doctor, hand it to him, and he checks it out. He's like, cool, everything's solid, right on. Next day, drug tested, think everything's fine. And um, I get a FedEx in the mail. That's how they inform you of everything. They put a FedEx in your locker, and in there, it says you have failed the drug test. And I'm like, for what? And the, you know, it's for opiates. Right. Um, and so I'm like, okay, cool. So I take it to my team and they're like, yeah, we, we handed in your prescription. So you're good. Well, I wasn't my, the prescription I had was 30 days old, right. It was for 30 days and I got tested on day 31. So therefore I failed the drug test. So, oh. yeah, so I got thrown in the drug program for, um, for about two months while my appeal went through and I completely stopped. Um, you know, I, I don't remember having any, having like any withdrawal symptoms. Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if it's cause I was always practicing and I sweated it out, whatever it is. Right. Um, but what I do remember was, was going on up here yeah. and that's where I understand now what is known as the phenomenon of craving. Yeah. And it's like constantly thinking about, it. I can't get it off my mind for two and a half months. I'm getting tested five times a month and 
boom, pass all the tests. My appeal goes through. Um, and I'd asked one of my friends on the team, I said, Hey, I said, letter came through, dude, I'm, I'm free. I'm in the clear. And I said, do you have any? And he goes, yeah. And he hands me this blue pill and which was an Oxycontin 30, took it, puked all over the place, loved it. And for me, I was off to the races. That's the bananas part of it, right? That, that craving. And I mean, what baffles me is that you said an ER doctor said, Hey, you might be uh, physically dependent upon this and then just wrote you a prescription. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's a trip. I mean, like I said, I pick clients up from the hospital to take them to treatment centers and, um, I can remember one in particular, right? So there's, uh, they, they were giving the client, uh, Suboxone, um, and they're prescribing them Suboxone and they were prescribing them an opiate at the same exact time. So I obviously walk in there. I walk into the doctor's office and, and, or sorry, the, the hospital where he just overdosed from and he's sitting in, um, and then I knew the individual. So I walked in and I said, where's it at? He's like, well, what are you talking about? I said, where's the Suboxone at? And he reaches in his pocket and sure enough, and I go back, boom, there's a Suboxone, right? And so I go back to the, the, the nurse and I said, do you guys understand what addiction is? I'm like, you can't give somebody these two substances. Well, you can, right? But if, if you give somebody who's on opiates, Suboxone, they're going to go directly into precipitated withdrawals. Yep. And she didn't understand that. Yeah. So in terms of treating addiction, it's, it's a relatively new thing or, or I don't, I don't know if it's new, right. I think maybe it's, um, you know, turning a blind eye or a lack of understanding or not wanting to have to deal with it as a, as an ER doctor or, um, a physician, right. I would like to think it's just a lack of knowledge and understanding of what right. addiction is and how it is. Um, and it's not an insult to doctors. And I've, I've spoken with them um, through the other work that I do at the nonprofit. And, and one of them admittedly is like, yeah, you know, his son had died from a fentanyl overdose and going, yeah, I, I did not understand addiction until I lost my son. And then I dug in and started talking with more doctors to make them aware, you know, yeah. It, it it just is. There's so many times that medications that, that like, yeah, it's, I mean, it, sure. You can give it to them if you want them to die. I mean, we go, you're a doctor. Yeah. Like you're supposed to know these things, right? Like I'm just a lowly drug addict and I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think we put a lot of pressure on them for sure. I think it's where oftentimes it, that it shows how much us, the, the recovery community is needed for a lot of these changes. You know, you'll hear the government talking about, we want to do this or that, or, or their perception of what uh, uh, harm reduction is and all. And it's like, can you just come talk with us, please? Yeah. Cause, you, Cause you guys don't get it. it. And really you're more doing it to save face. Like see what we're doing when you're not really doing a damn thing. You're not going to help anyone. I struggled. I struggled with that. And in one of my treatment centers, the the gentleman who was running it, right. Is not in recovery. He's a doctor. And I don't, I don't know if you've had this experience at all, but you know, he's telling me, you know, well, your taper, you should be done at this point off your Suboxone taper. And I'm like, dude, it's been like three days. Yeah. Like, like I've been using heroin for the last six months. You know, like I feel like crap. Can you help me? Can we, can you work with me on this? And he's like, well, the book says this, you know? And I'm like, but this is what I'm saying. Like, I've told you that I don't want to stay on this, 
but I need help getting through it. Right. I mean, I, you know, left the next day I'm out, you know, and it was a struggle. <laughs> it was a struggle. Yeah. Well, I, so we got the opioids going, like you said, it still amazes me too, people where they say that like, yeah, I got that blue pill. I puked and I loved it. That's not the first time I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a trip, you know? And, and that, that's what got, I mean, the reality, that was like the beginning of the end for me. Mm. Um, you know, like obviously for me, it was like, a, like a distance away, um, probably, you know, seven, eight years away. But that was the second I took that. It was my life changed. So when did it, when did we really start to fall off the rails? Did your career end because of injury, the drug usage or the combination of? No, just a, a lot of it was my ego. Mm. Uh, there, there was individuals that, and, and maybe um, substances could have played a part in it, right? Like at that point, I still hadn't done like an illicit drug, right? It was just, it was just, you know, popping, you know, oxys and drinking. That was my get down. Um, never really did anything else. Cause I'm like, Oh, that'll show up on a drug test. I didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize my career. Right. Um, but you know, just my ego, it was a situation where, you know, I'd played in over a hundred games. I'd started multiple games, um, played multiple positions and, and people who just didn't accomplish as much as I had, um, were making far more greater, far more amount of money than I was. Right. And I'm like, why is it that I'm not doing, why, why is it that I'm not making that kind of money? And is it worth it? Um, so talking to my wife, it was a situation of, you know, is it worth it going out there, getting my butt kicked for what could be nothing? Um, you know, or, you know, it's, it's, I was just tired. Yeah, I was tired. And a lot of it, I mean, I was taking 30 of those things on a daily basis, you know, my last two years when I was in Arizona and getting them sent to me from around the country you know, and it was, uh, I remember two situations where I didn't have anything Well, I ain't practicing. So I'm like, I'm sick. I got the flu. So they're like, okay, well, and, and what they did in Arizona was like, okay, cool, man, chill in this room. We're going to pump you full of fluids. And then you got to sit here and you got to watch film all day. It's not like a, Hey, you're going to go home, you know, cause it, they expect you to, if by the next day you're ready to go, you pick up where you left off. Right. Uh, so I remember two days in particular like, that I did that in Arizona um, you know, I've also had my wife drive and drop them off at the practice facility, you know, Hey, go pick these up over here and then meet me over here. And, um, you know, it's at that time I did have the finances to be, you know, to get them shipped from wherever I need. Okay. Overnight. I didn't care how much money it took. Um, I was in Hawaii on vacation and had them overnighted to Hawaii, wow. you know, there with my family. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150ltm.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Did the did the missus just not know how to handle the situation? Did she not understand that it was a problem? What what No, I mean she she's in recovery too. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She's she's uh she's actually been using she has some lot of me uh, medical health issues, you know. So 
Um, you know, looking back and she'd probably tell you she's been an addict since she was 18 years old. Sure. Um, she, she didn't go to quite the extent that I did. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's actually got three more days than I do in terms of recovery time. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) You get, you guys know you're an anomaly, right? A couple that was both in their addiction and to get sober and to be together. I commend you both. Yeah. I had a good sponsor who helped me set a lot of boundaries and we, it, it wasn't a, uh, an overnight thing. Let's just Mm. say for sure. I mean, it's, we can talk about that if you want. I mean, it's, it's pretty the whole story. So, um, we'd been married for 10 years when she finally went to treatment. So, um, yeah. So I, I, when she went to her first, I went to my sixth. So, yeah. So it was, we were going through a divorce, um, due to our, um, we struggled a lot in, in our addiction for sure. Um, it definitely, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, when we were both using, we were both lovey-dovey when we weren't, we didn't want to be near each other. Um, but like I said, at that point, it was 10 years of marriage by the time we had the treatment. So we'd had during my whole career, I, I wasn't, you, you know, I was using, but I wasn't an issue. And so we had, you know, we got married at 21, had a happy seven, eight years. And then um, once I, once I retired and stopped, working that's when it really became an issue right um but we were successful you know um so long story short is she uh, goes to treatment uh we're going through divorce she puts the divorce on hold while we both go to treatment right because we don't want to make any um irrational decisions while we're under the influence um literally one court date away from being finalized um which was a blessing for me and um she goes to treatment. I go to treatment. I work the steps. I'm with my sponsor. The program I went to was an all men's faith-based program in the middle of nowhere, San Diego. If you want to leave, it's a 10 mile hike in either direction. Um, and the people that work there take you through the steps. Yeah. And uh, like I said, I got a treatment five other times. Wasn't getting it. Couldn't figure it out. Had gone steps one through three. And, uh, you know, finally actually to decide to commit myself. Um, to doing the steps. And I'm like, you know what, if, if I do this and it doesn't work, then I'm just going to go die somewhere. That was my thought. Um, I showed up with two trash bags, couldn't get a bank account, um, sold my house in Napa, you know, a few years before, uh, had a brand new Jeep, uh, Jeep Cherokee that I traded in at CarMax because they would give you instant cash for your car. Right. right. Um, you know, I had literally lost everything. Um, so we showed up to this treatment center and, you know, my sponsor, uh, was definitely the last person that I would have picked. Um, you know, I, I'd gone to, at the time I'd gone to every single person that I wanted to sponsor me. And he was literally the last one. And they're like, I'm like, why isn't anybody willing to sponsor me? And they're like, because we already have one picked out for you. Huh. And it, was, it was, uh, Steve, a. he was the cook, <laughs> you know, couldn't be, you know, other than being, um, you know, from, you know, him being from Hemet and being growing up in a, um, a, a kind of a broken home and me growing up in a broken home, right. And being kind of lower end income, um, we are completely different. You know, he'd been to prison, um, tattoos on his neck and, uh, you know, we, I'm like him, that guy can't help me. There's no way. Like I thought I was terminally unique. 
<laughs> sure. I, so I'm like, yeah, we hope you. He, he, there's no way that guy can tell me that he's been through some of the stuff that I've been through. Um, and that he saved my life. I still, we talk all the time. I still think, Hey man, he saved my life dude. It's mm-hmm. I'm here with, because of something that you did for me and he didn't cut me any slack. And one thing that, um, uh, that he told me is he's like, so what are you going to do? So I, I, the program that I went through, uh, I ended up living up there for a year and that was due in part for him saying, Hey man, like you and your wife, you've been using for a while. You've been going through some struggles. He's like, why would you go back into that environment? He's like, why don't you set this boundary with your wife and say, Hey, like, since, since we're not going through with this divorce yet, you know, it's still on hold. Like, why don't you live separately from each other and start dating again Hmm. and, and do it for a year. And if it, if it doesn't work out after a year, then you both shake hands, give hugs, sign the papers, you go your separate ways. And, um, if it works out, he goes, then you both win. And, uh, we did that. She lived in sober living. I lived in, um, a double wide trailer on a dirt farm and yeah. And we, after uh, there was a spot in there where I said, Hey, you know, there's some character defects that I see. I completed my steps, um, and was sponsoring people. And I'm like, there's some things that I'd like you to work on. I set the boundary of, uh, Hey, I need you to complete your 12 steps before we move in. So it was, it ended up being a little bit longer than a year um, that she ended up moving back in and still married to this day. That's awesome, man. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's funny. You said I would get to my third step because uh fourth step for those not in the know, that can be brutal. Yes. It's, it's a hard look at yourself. Right. And sometimes that's hard. I mean, it's, it was hard for me. You know, I thought I was a, a very humble person um, and realizing now that I was arrogant, I was selfish, um, you know, and, and thought that I was there in certain aspects for my family when in reality I wasn't, yeah. you know, for, for the family that had been there for me. And um, it's not easy to see. But for me, luckily, I was in a, like a closed, safe environment to where, you know, I had somebody at my side 24-7 that I could talk to. Yeah. Yeah, I that's why I tell people if you if you're struggling and you can do rehab, find a good one. We'll ask around, we'll search, do it. I unfortunately was not in a position to do it, and I think it would have benefited me greatly. Luckily, I've made so many connections with people that have that I get to pick their brain. But uh yeah, last night, Mike, I had a, a situation, a gentleman that did my traffic um when I started in radio. It was the afternoon DJ, and I had made a very tasteless joke. Um, uh, it was concerning his race and when there was a lot of terrorism going on and it really hurt him. And I made an amends last night. I literally sent him a message. Like I just recalled this. Uh, like, I don't know if I ever apologized. I am so sorry. That is so messed up of me. <laughs> and, and he said, all good water under the bridge. You know, you're a good dude. Thank you. And I can see how recovery has turned your life around, but you were always good to me. But I did the, you know, I wanted to be Howard Stern. So I crossed the line with someone that didn't deserve it. And I had to, you know, still to this day, finding things like, oh, crap, I got to get a hold of that person. I just remembered this. And and it's a good way to live, though. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'd rather pick up that thousand pound phone than the other one, right? Yeah. So, yeah, making amends is, 
uh, my interesting thing with amends is is uh certain times that I've made amends with people, they have no idea what, what I'm even talking about. <laughs> right. even, you know, even to this day, you're reviewing your end of the day. Right. And you're like, Oh, okay. I'm reviewing my day. Do I need to make amends to anybody? And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I do. You know, I, I told my boss a few years ago, we played softball together and he made a comment. I told him to shut the F up. Right. And so I'm thinking the whole time, like, God, dude, I did not want to call him. I like almost immediately after the game, I'm like, I, when I said it, I knew I was going to have to make amends, right? <laughs> right. And so like five minutes after the game, we had, we had left. And so I picked up the phone and called him. I said, hey, um, I just wanted to apologize. And he's like, for what? <sighs> well, when you said something to me and I was in the outfield, I told you to shut the F up. And he's like, you did? And I said, yeah, so I was wrong. What can I do to make it right? And he's like, you just did, man. That's awesome. <laughs> and like now he knows that I told him to shut that up, you know, when he didn't even know it before. <laughs> He's looking at Mike a little different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's just, it, it, it really is for, for me. And it sounds like for you and I always encourage the 12 steps for everyone. And I'm not saying it's the only way. Cause I do know people have had their own ways of getting, uh, getting clean uh, and sober and, you know, I just know for me, it's given me a really good foundation that, that makes sense. There's, there's, you know, some people, I, I don't know if you've ran into this. Oh, it sounds cultish. It's like, no, they're, they're really great 12 steps that give you so much fluidity in life to live. It's, mm -hmm. you know, and it's hard to get people to understand that sometimes, especially newcomers. Yeah, no, it's, um, I'm a believer that everybody should take the steps, not people in recovery. No, nah, I'm talking everyday people because right? it's, it's just going to make you a better person. Yep. Um, that's my opinion. I don't care how you get clean, how you get sober, as long as you get clean and you get sober. Yeah. You know? And then you stay sober. Um, you know, the easiest part is getting clean, in my opinion. The hardest part is staying clean. Yeah. Right. And so what it is is just steps to help you stay clean. Yeah. Right. And and to to be a good person. That's you know, who doesn't want that? Yeah. My last guy that I was, was working with, I said, it, I said, it, it helps you look at your side of the street, only your side of the street and keep it clean. Yep. You know, control what you can control. It goes back to the serenity prayer. Really? Yep. Exactly. Oh man. Hey, you know what, Mike, I am with you. I think there should be high school programs with the 12 steps. Maybe you and I get together, write this curriculum. Cause I need a vacation. And if you're in San Diego now, I thought you're still in Napa. I'm like, dude, we should have just worked this out. You're like, like an hour and a half away from my studio. <laughs> come on down. But maybe I got to come down there. Cause I think that it really, especially with the mental health of our teenagers now and so much they're faced with that, that it would be incredibly beneficial. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah, I, so many are so lost, you know. I mean, you know, young men yeah. not not knowing what it it means anymore to to be a man. Young women, I see it, and I feel for them that uh, you know they're so focused on the outside as opposed to you know a content of character, and that's it, you know it hurts my heart, you know. Yeah, so. that's that's one of the curses of technology, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, don't <laughs> I could go for another yeah. hour. On I know, I'm right there with you. <laughs> on all this bull, but uh yeah. uh, uh Mike, I, before I get to uh, some fun random questions, leave you with the final thought. People want to get a hold of you, maybe uh, reach out, uh you know, if they're looking it sounds like you are working in treatment, correct? Yes, I I work for two different programs. I work for a primary mental health facility, um the Mental Health Center of San Diego. 
Um, and then uh, uh, healthy life recovery. And healthy life recovery is a um, is a PHP IOP, so an outpatient program, substance abuse program um, that I work for. So uh, we kind of we tackled everything, right? The whole mental health component and the substance abuse component. Um, great places to work. It's beautiful San Diego. Um, you can reach me on Instagram, uh, Mike.Gibson69, I believe is what it is. Um, and then, uh, yeah, my name is Mike Gibson. So if you want to look me up on Facebook, <laughs> we'll put it in the, uh, the, the show notes here. So people right on, right have on. those links and 69, be- it wasn't a sexual joke, right? <laughs> no, my life, when I was in Arizona with the Cardinals, I was number 69. All right. I yeah. want to make that clear to people. <laughs> you know, that this wasn't Mike being like, yeah, you know, yeah. that yeah. was my number with the Cardinals. I promise. Oh, good deal. Yeah, Mike, you know, uh, thank you for this. You know, you're, uh, I developed a, a, a friendship with Randy Grimes, of course, played with the Buccaneers. Not sure if you're familiar with them, but opioids. And it seems to be with uh, friends of mine. I had a friend that played a good decade in the NFL, and he started to really see that mounting up with injuries. And um, I know there's a platform for a lot of people. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of professional athletes suffering a lot of pain to keep going, you know. Yeah. And just the lack of resources that, uh, the, you know, the NFL PA, the NFL, uh, the NFL formers players association, they just don't have very many. Re- when I was going through treatment and needed help, I mean, my family was calling the NFL player association. They were calling my insurance company. They were calling everybody. Right. And not one person could help them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to bring that to, you know, the NFL PA, the former players association, um, and the actual league, um, yeah. you know, because it's um, it's being more to the forefront. It's brought more to the forefront today and more prevalent today than probably ever. Yeah, and we just got to keep pushing. Yep. All right, Mike. Here it's uh, time to have some fun. All right. All right. All right. So uh, you write your autobiography, which hey, I would read because uh, that seems to be my, especially addiction recovery autobiographies. I've got about 90 million of them. Uh, <laughs> they decide to license it as a movie or TV show. Who would you want to play you? Oh, my goodness. Damn, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Hold on, let me think of this. <laughs> um, I mean, it's my favorite. Leonardo DiCaprio, that's my favorite actor, but he's just doesn't look like an athlete. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, no, but uh, hey, you never know. Maybe Leo could bulk up. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, or just hide it in some pads or whatever else. All right, right, we'll go with that. I was thinking like one of the Hamesworth brothers or something, you know, somebody just good and jacked, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. What's the, uh, one of my favorite football movies is uh, the, the movie, The Program. Uh, and there's a guy that plays Latimer. I don't even know his name, but I know him as Latimer, right? So that's who I'd pick. Right. Yeah, he was the the dude that would like paint his face, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember what happened with that guy. I believe that he had a real downward spiral himself, but yeah, he was great. He had like a run of football movies for a oh, while. Yeah. Oh man. Uh you could have one superpower. What would it be and why? I don't know. I'm pretty lame with these questions. Hold on, let me think. I'm already big. I'm already strong, right? So, like, uh, you know what? Be to uh, teleportation, man. Yeah, it's flying's cool, but I hate it, right? If I could snap my fingers and be in Florida, one hundred percent. Right? TSA yeah. is a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, right. And and being that I, I'm like, I'm not, you know, 
I'm not going to be the guy that starts talking with people on the plane. You know, it's like, yeah, if I could just get there, avoid all that lines, people, crowds, please help I could me. I've fingers and been right there with you today. All right. That would have been perfect. You know, <laughs> right. Um, all right. Here's the here's a fun one. Uh, you are stranded on a deserted island. You have one movie with you and one musical act or artist, their greatest hits. Who are they or what is um, it? Wedding Crashers uh, and Queen. Oh, right on. I, yep. too, am a Queen fan. Yeah. Why Wedding Crashers? Uh, just between Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, it's probably one of the funniest movies of all time. I'll give you that. I'll give yeah. you that. What about Queen? Did that just kind of start childhood uh, music that was in the house? Yep. Had Queen's Grief. I started as a, you know, classic rock and stuff like that was something that was always played around the house. And then I remember having uh, Queen's Greatest Hits, right? It was like a two CD, a gold gold label, right? You busted it apart. You had one CD there, one CD there. And kids yeah. know what that is. But... <laughs> right? What's the CD? <laughs> I don't yeah. Jeez, Dad, that's old technology. What is <laughs> right? this thing? It yeah. was on a disc. Yeah. And it used to be on a bigger disc at one time. What? Yeah. yeah. I asked uh, some, some young people, I said, do you know what burning a CD is? You know? And they're like, you throw it on the fire, you burn it. <laughs> I played softball with a lot of young people. And so I ask them interesting questions like that. Yeah. Well, what about like uh, the, the mixtape that you used to like give a significant other or whatever? That is a lost art. Yeah. It's totally. Uh, I got to ask about the softball. You talk about doing sober softball. Tell me a little bit about it. And uh, maybe it's something somebody will be intrigued and want to get involved with. Yeah, no, definitely. They have uh, sober softball all around the country. Um, uh, here in San Diego, we have a league. Um, it's 15 teams. Um, each team has a maximum of 18 people. Uh, we play three seasons a year. We play. So there's like drug court. I don't, I don't, I did go through that a lot up in Northern California. So they have like a drug course central, north, south, east, west. So they're in it. Um, there's a couple of treatment centers that play in it. But majority of the time, it's people getting together every single Sunday. Um, it's a nonprofit. I was a secretary of it for two years. Um, so we run three 10-game seasons a year, including there's playoffs as well. Um, it gets intense, man. We were there from nine, from 9 in the morning until usually about 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Sundays. Um there's a whole sanction, uh, the Clean and Sober National Softball Association, um, or CSNSA. Um, they have a Facebook page as well. And what they do is they travel all around the country and uh, hold these tournaments, right? The people that run it are in recovery. The people that plan it are in recovery. Um, they have a world's event. They just had one in Florida. Um, and they had the nationals coming up in Arizona, which will be in January. Um you win, you win rings, you win all sorts of prizes, right? They have meetings every night. It's it's a really good time to fellowship. Yeah. Um, this weekend here in San Diego, there is a Toys for Tots tournament, which is that Memorial Day are the biggest tournaments of the year. Um, I think there's around 35 teams that are playing in it. So it'll start Friday night, go all the way through Sunday. So That's cool. Yeah, and it's just a bunch of people getting together that are in sobriety um, where they can let go of uh, – uh, where they can put on display some of their character defects. Yeah, I dig <laughs> it, man. I dig it. Yeah. Well, Mike, I always like to leave the guests kind of with the final words, uh, you know, anyone that's struggling or or maybe, you know, on the other side, but but doing the work or a loved one of theirs that uh, what what might you lend? Give it, just give it a chance. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you owe it to yourself um, and you deserve the, you deserve it. 
right? Like that was one thing that was hard for me to grasp was like, I deserve to live a good life. Um, you know, you can do things like I did, do it, do it out of spite, do the steps out of spite, you know, saying I'm going to do this. And if does, this doesn't work, then I'm just going to go die somewhere. And that was my mentality was this stuff doesn't work. I promise you it works. I mean, it's, I, I, I'm him. Like I've been that guy, um, you know, and, and I've never, I, I heard this from a newcomer in a meeting uh, recently. And uh, that's the beautiful part about meetings is you can go as to as many meetings as you want and you learn something new, whether it's somebody who has 50 years of sobriety or somebody who has 24 hours. Um, and uh, it has to do with my higher power, right? And, and what that was, what was stated was find me somebody whose life got worse because they started believing in God. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuck with me and I use it and I say it all the time, you know? You know, what, what do people like us that are in addiction have to lose? Um, go out and bet on yourself. You deserve it. Um, and it's worth it, I promise. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.